my name is Daniel Lev Shkolnik, and this is Reenchantment, a podcast about finding wonder in a secular age. My faith lies in humanity, not the supernatural. And if you believe that spirituality is fundamentally about cultivating the human spirit, then this podcast is for you. This is the second in an ongoing series of episodes called Lives Well Lived, in which I highlight people who, I believe, have lived in a particularly beautiful way and who have taught me something about how better to spend my own time on this earth. In this episode, I speak with Ansley Sawyer, a filmmaker and world traveler. She's worked on a sailboat in the Greek islands. She's tracked golden eagles on the Mongolian steppes. She's evaded the Burmese government while making a documentary about the longest ongoing civil war in the world. People sometimes dream of what it might be like to fling caution to the wind and set out to explore this planet to its far rim. We love to hear about and watch stories of those who snap on their boots and heed the call to adventure. Most people don't do it. Ansley is one of the few who does. Guided by a deep curiosity about humanity, she is uncompromising in her search for and documentation of wonder. She seeks it out and brings it back on camera for others to see. I've never seen a film by her that I wasn't impressed by in some way, or that didn't put me in a state of awe. But more important than what she produces is who she is. For me, and I hope for you, she's an example of someone who is unafraid to journey outside the pale. Simply by living as she does, she's inspired me to cross many literal borders, as well as the figurative borders of fear that separate me from the life which I truly want to live. And so, without further ado, I'd like you to meet Ansley Sawyer. Ansley, welcome to Reenchantment. Thank you for having me. It's very nice to see you. Yeah, it's been a while. So, let's let's give people a little bit of background about both about you and why I think you are an interesting person to to talk with. So I we met back when I, I was in college and we met with dancing. And then you jetted off to to I believe Paris and you you were part of uh, you went to mime school. What is it? What is the institute? Oh my god. It's it's physical theater. It's L'Ecole Internationale de Théâtre Jacques Lecoq. For those who know, it's kind of a big... It's, yeah, okay, it's mime school, sure. It's, school. <laughs> it's the Harvard of mimes, all right? It's the Harvard we'll of We'll give mimes. it that. <laughs> but what, what, I was, what I was really impressed with, what I was really struck by, was the kind of fearlessness with which you lived your life and the adventure that you put into even small things. There's a kind of courageousness that I saw in you that was really inspiring. And I, I want to talk with you about about your life, because uh, I think many people might might similarly be inspired. At least I hope they will be. You're too kind. <laughs> I'm, it's not a big deal. I'm not that cool. <laughs> I'm, well, so, so... It was so nice of you to <laughs> well, invite I, me. So nice of you to invite me. But also, when you told me about this, I was like, okay, you think I've led an interesting life. Well, shit, what is that? Oh my god, like, I don't think, I don't know, have I? Like, I... So, okay, I'm gonna stop you right there. Yes, you have. And two, there's this, there's some, somebody once said to me, or I heard this somewhere, that if you're trying to figure out what you're a genius at, it's the thing that other people, when they see your life, they, they say, I could never do that. Mm-hmm. And for you, you're like, that this is simple. This is easy. This is this is, and that's what you're doing right now. You're just like, what? What do you mean? This is this is normal. This is fine. No, it's not. <laughs> people don't. People often do not do the kinds of things that you do with the kind of uh, bravado and and flair that you do them. And so, I, I want to get out of that abstract. Tell us a little bit about how what you've done so far in your life, the adventures you've gone on. Okay, well, since you asked. (laughs) First of all, thank you so much. I mean, when somebody says, like, talk about yourself, it's always kind of a dangerous prompt, right? It, you should be thoughtful about it. I'm 29, so I'm nowhere close to writing my life's work. And I'm sure that when I listen back or watch back on this a year from now, I'll be like, come on, like, it's not that big of a deal. But 
I do think there's something to be said for, and it's cliche, just listening to your gut and just doing things that you feel confident in. And anyway, again, you said to get away from the abstract. So, okay, in no particular order, I'll just give you a little bit of background on myself. I'm a filmmaker. I started off in film very unceremoniously. I, zooming backwards, have always been really fascinated with travel. Ever since I was a little kid, I wanted to go to Russia, I wanted to go to Australia, I wanted to go to Kazakhstan, Asia. As soon as I was able, when I was 18, I got a job as an au pair living in France, and I paid myself the whole way, and it was just a great learning and living experience, and just living abroad taught me so much. And that's not very unique, I think a lot of people have had that experience, especially in 2020. I think I just got a little out of control with it. I <laughs> I just started traveling basically nonstop. I, in again, no particular order. I worked several seasons as a sailor in Greece. I delivered yachts in the Gulf of Mexico. It's just good money and it's fun. <laughs> and the people are crazy. The people are crazy. So that's very entertaining. You get lots of good life stories. I've hitchhiked all over Europe. I, what, what else, what else have I done? I, as I was traveling and working as an actor, so when I was, when I was working on these sailboats, part of the year, I would spend the other part of the year acting and singing. And so there's a season for that. And then when the money and the jobs ran out on that, I would go uh, and deliver yachts and help rich people relieve themselves of money with seafood. I don't know. <laughs> Gathering the whole while all of these stories of just different people and cultures and religions and languages and feeling increasingly discouraged because they there's no degree for that. There's no job for that. There's no... I was only receiving feedback of like, okay, that's nice, but what are you going to do for the rest of your life? Meanwhile, I was going to UPenn. I transferred there from Penn State. So it's not like I flunked out of college. Like I went to a very good school. I got a very good degree. And then I promptly left and went to physical theater school in Paris. And I really wanted to be an actor and I really followed my gut. And it was, it was 100% what I wanted to do. So I just set my mind on it and I got accepted and I couldn't afford it. So I worked three jobs. I've, I, I worked every day for months in order to be able to get to where I wanted to be. And all of that happened by the time I was 23. And around that time, I found myself increasingly disenchanted with acting for a variety of reasons. Mostly there's this thing in the art world that's like, oh, I'm so avant-garde. Like, and it's true in dancing too. It's like, you've never seen this before. And it's like, <laughs> but no, we've seen it all before. And I, more than anything, was frustrated with not only how derived the devised method was, and that's the method that I used in theater, the devised method, which sounds great, like you take inspiration from your surroundings, and that informed me later, but it's, it's a lot of like, I'm feeling, and that's what you're acting. It's this, this is the face, it's, it's like, I'm feeling, <laughs> I'm feeling so much right now. Can you see how much I'm feeling? Can you feel how can much? You feel? Can you feel how much I'm feeling? And the problem is people don't care. People don't care about that. You don't convince anybody of anything new. You're not mm -hmm. pushing past any boundaries. It's all the same people in that theater. It's all the same subscribers. That theater can only fit 50 people. It's a necessarily limited audience. And I... So, so you, wanted, you wanted something more, more authentic, more real, less, less, less of the... Less, less sauce on it and, and more, <clears throat> more meat. Yeah, I think you could say that. I think that's a really good one. I'm going to use that from now on. Yeah. <laughs> Except I, I like the sauce more than the meat lately. I don't know what that says about me. But no, I, I also was confused because I wanted to travel. And you can't really travel as an actor. And so I didn't know what I was propelling myself into. All I knew was that I wanted to live out of a backpack. I bought a camera and it was kind of cool. I made some cool looking stuff. I didn't know anything about photography. I was just traveling to Israel and Turkey and Germany and hanging out with my friends and couch surfing on the weekend. I was just a young 20 something, just like, I don't know what I'm gonna do, but I'm just gonna pursue it as much as I possibly can. And what that looks like is working part-time at a cafe when you live somewhere for six months. And that's not being an artist. And that was frustrating too. I felt 
Like I was giving my time away and I, I didn't want to compromise. I mean, I'm happy to compromise. I'm happy to work hard, but not when it doesn't further your destiny. That's the wrong word. It's, you don't know what you're getting yourself into, except that you're working for somebody and they're making money off of you. And for me at that moment, yeah. it wasn't, I needed, I needed, I needed to live into my ultimate version of myself more than I needed to pay rent. And I'm privileged. I'm privileged. That's a privileged position to be in. Like, I don't have kids. I'm not disabled. Like, I didn't have sure. bills. I didn't have yeah. student debt. I came out of college with no debt. That that changed everything for me. Like, I got so lucky. Yeah. So. Or or you don't have, I'm assuming you don't have uh, sick parents that you have to support thank and, God, and take thank care God, of. Thank God, not yet. I mean, everybody. So I just got really lucky. And I also worked really hard. And I put myself in a position where I've never been in debt. And where I was able to have the luxury to say no to a lot of people, mm -hmm. which sucks. Yeah. Saying no hurts. Saying no and, is hard. And I, and I take it, uh, something that I have found over the years is that that is the thing, the one thing that I think has gotten me closer and closer to where I want to be in life is saying no to the right things or really saying no to the wrong things and saying it again and again and again until the thing that you can't say no to, you're stuck with. <laughs> exactly. No, exactly. Exactly. And it gets easier as you start turning things away. At first, it's really intimidating because you're young, you don't mean anything to anybody, you haven't really made anything of worth yet. So who are you to be turning down opportunities? And I just found that because of my privilege, but because of just my luck and my hard work as well, I was able to finagle myself into a situation where I was self-sustaining and I was learning, I was traveling, I was meeting people, I was gathering stories, I was taking notes. I mean, when you're working on a sailboat, you are at a harbor at night next to fishermen. And I'll never forget this one fisherman, he was a sea urchin, um, diver and his hands were like leather like they were like gloves like he took off his gloves and you're like you still got another pair there buddy like leather I mean leather and a sea urchin on this island was like really valuable and sometimes when we took tourists out I'd go diving for sea urchin I'd get a fat tip it was great but this guy this was his life and he probably made like seven thousand dollars a year I mean bottom of the food chain wow. like wow. lost all his teeth at 42 like just Every night we would just slam raku, like just, just like living the Greek fisherman lifestyle. And on the same boat the next day, I would take out the ultra wealthy and I would go diving for sea urchin and they'd be so impressed and they're like, wow. And, and it just seemed so crazy to me that in the same place, within a 24 hour span, I was able to intersect in so many different people's lives. And this is the kind of the wrong phrase, but I could code switch. I could speak Greek with the fishermen. I could speak French with the tourists and I could speak English with the captain. And I, I, I just found a way that I could flow socially. And I found that to be more fascinating than any play I've, I had done any thesis I had written. Mm -hmm. I just liked feeling that social contact. Cause it's, it's life itself right yeah. it's it's not performed it's not analyzed it's it's lived and I, I i and i get that i i that's what i what attracted me to journalism writing about people or sociology studying studying large groups and i think more and more it's i'm searching for it in my surroundings that's why i moved to new orleans it's, it's a city where I, I didn't know what community meant until i moved here and every time i walk around my neighborhood i walk every morning i i just see the same people we I stop we have a conversation we know each other like i know when they go to the hospital i know when they come back from the hospital and any bar you walk into you will meet people like that i I met someone that came off of a sailboat, just wandering down the street, dazed look on his face, like, I just nearly died coming from uh, the Bahamas or something. <laughs> Man, I've got those and, stories, too. I nearly died getting to Cuba, yeah. but that's set on the record. Yeah, yeah. So so you found, well, before before we get into the, 
No, let's, 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 let's touch on the filmmaking real quick. So, so you found in filmmaking an expression of this, you know, fabric, this human stuff that, that you want to get at, but it can't be acted out. And you, I, I think the video that, at least the video that is in my head that got you to do this is the, the Watchtower of Turkey. Is that right? I wasn't involved in that one, but that one was an incredible inspiration for me. When I saw, when I saw Leonardo D'Alessandro's Watchtower of Turkey, wait, now, I'm sure that's uh, his uh, name. Uh, Leonardo D'Alessandro. Leonardo D'Alessandro. Yep. When I saw... Yeah. When I saw Watchtower, oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna link I'm gonna link in the in the notes to this video because people have to see it. It, it. It's amazing. It's, I mean, let me just make sure I get this right. Watchtower of Turkey, D'Alessandri. So when I saw Watchtower of Turkey for the first time, I wasn't even remotely interested in media. I wasn't even thinking like oh, I'm going to get into filmmaking, or even I'm going to get into photography. I mean, don't get me wrong, when I was wandering around in Jerusalem with my camera, and, like, I went into the Arab Quarter, and, like, I got this thrill of, like, I captured this beautiful, perfect photo of this little girl, and then I got yelled at because I took this perfect... I was like, wow, this is thrilling, and I navigated out of it, and I gave the photo to the uncle, and now he's not mad at me. I've made a connection. And that's addictive, but I never... I never thought I would get into it as a career. So what happened was I nearly died on a boat to Cuba. I was navigating a sailboat for a delivery to Cuba and the owner was on board. Very long story short, through no fault of my own, the boat ended up on the reef outside of Havana. I sailed it three days to get there. And then he took the wheel to bring it in and he crashed right into the reef and I landed in Cuba on a life raft. And he lost all of his money. I actually hadn't heard that story. Really? <laughs> no, no, I hadn't. Well, I nearly died on my way to Cuba, and I arrived in Cuba on a life raft. But I'm the American gets to Cuba on a life raft. And uh, I had no money because he didn't pay me because he lost everything because he wrecked his boat and the insurance took the rest. I mean, like, he was screwed. And I, I had $500 left. I mean, I had, I had nothing left. And this was before Obama got friendly with Cuba. So I'm not supposed to be there. We were heading to Dominica. So we're not supposed to be there. My ride crashed. And I'm like, shoot, what do I do? So I'm a survivor. I love travel. Not a problem. I found my way back to Mexico <laughs> on another boat with a bunch of other marooned Americans. That was a separate adventure. I ended up back in the United States, just as you just described, walking down the street, days like sunburned, like hair bleached. I cut all my hair off. My hair was like this short, like, anyway. And I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life because as far as I was concerned, acting was over. And I just, I wasn't really interested in it anymore. And the next day after I got back into the United States, I just went on Vimeo and I watched this video by Brandon Lee called Tokyo Roar. And I just thought it was fascinating because he didn't use any language whatsoever. There were no words spoken. And what I studied in mime school is how to tell a story without saying anything at all. Mm -hmm. And that was what I was experimenting with, with the fishermen in Greece and learning how to talk to people, learning how they want to be spoken to. And so all of a sudden, all these things started to come together. And on a whim, I messaged him, the director of this award-winning short film. I just tracked down his email and I was like, hey, do you need any help? Just what, what do you need? What's helpful to you? Not because I wanted a job, but just because I saw that he was telling stories while traveling. And that's what I wanted to do because that's what I was doing. But I yeah. didn't care about yeah. the medium. Very long story short, I started working for him as a producer. And then... I pitched to him the idea of making a film that is now called Nomads of Mongolia. And mm -hmm. big, I mean, big up to Brandon. He bought a ticket for me to Ulaanbaatar without really knowing me that well. We'd only been working together remotely <laughs> for like six months at this point. And yeah, we proceeded to make an, one of my favorite films in six weeks. And we both got food poisoning. We both nearly died. It was very crazy situation. That's a whole other story. <laughs> and then I, there was this one moment when our Jeep broke down 
Now, Mongolia is the least densely populated country in the world. But this part of Mongolia was on the Mongolian-Russian border, so it's in the Almaty, or not Almaty, it's in the Altai region on the west, mm -hmm. where the Golden Eagles are, with the, they're ethnically Kazakh people, not Mongolian. Mm -hmm. And The Golden Eagles are, are, are a people? Great question. The Golden Eagles are eagles that are golden. They're not, they're not golden. They're huge. <laughs> tip to tip, their wingspan is greater than any other like, bird of prey. Wow. It's, they're the biggest eagle. I'm pretty sure that's correct. Anyway, so these people hunt with these eagles. They train these eagles, oh, and wow. they, that's how they subsist. They're nomadic. They're completely nomadic. So we went out there to see them and make a film about them. And our Jeep, well, it's not a Jeep, it's like a Russian Jeep. Our <laughs> Jeep driving from the nearest airport to where we were trying to go, which is like an eight-hour drive, broke down, and there was some problem with the tire. And... Again, least densely populated country in the world. So somebody passes us, but they say, oh, there's a truck about two hours behind. They'll have a wrench big enough. <laughs> so, two hours right, behind. Right, so we're stuck. So we know that a truck is coming in two hours that has the hardware necessary to fix our problem. So Brandon handed me a camera, and he's like, go cover this. Go film this. And I had no idea. I was like, how do I turn it on? Like, I had no idea what I was doing. And I, I did my best. I worked really hard. I climbed to the top of a mountain. I got a really high view. I came back. I got shots of the tire and everything. And it sucked. The footage was so bad. It was overexposed. The frame rate was not correct according to the shutter speed. The ISO was bumped up for some reason. I mean, the white balance was off. And over the course of the next two years, I learned, I'm not going to say everything that he knows, but he taught me his style his method, and I went from not knowing a thing, not even wanting to film anything, to mm -hmm. being a producer, to being a second shooter. And now, years later, I'm a director, I'm a shooter, I'm an editor, I'm a producer, I do it all. And you have your own company now, Yeah, right? I have my own production company, which is so cool. <laughs> like, Wait, what is it, what is it called? It's, What's the it's name? called Torque World, and it's T-O-R-Q. And it's growing. I'm learning. I'm not very good at branding. I'm not very good at advertising myself. But well, consider your, consider yourself advertised. Torqueworld.com. <laughs> but really, I've had a difficult time allying myself to a single brand because it's Ansley Sawyer. It's me. It's my brand. It's my story. It's my life. Like that's that's the, yeah, having some yeah. branding crisis over here. But no, you're so kind to ask. I think what it really comes down to is storytelling, connecting with people and making other people feel good making other mm -hmm. people feel like you're not parachuting in to steal their information making other people feel valued and loved and heard and sometimes you just need to listen to them even though that they're not giving you what you need sometimes they mm -hmm. just need somebody to tell their story to and you just need to be yeah. patient and show them that you're listening and show them that you care. Even if in the back of your head, they're not speaking in complete sentences, they're not looking at the camera, they're talking about the thing I asked them not to talk about. Sometimes less is more. Yeah. And I, I think there is a lot of wisdom in that, in the sense that I, I hear much the same from various spiritual traditions and from my, my, my mentor who there's there's so much emphasis placed on listening not on telling people what what they should be thinking how they should be living but listening and hearing and understanding seek first to be understood seek first to understand before you seek to be understood saint francis of assisi and there's something about there's something really important about being able to tell your story being able to have your your story recorded preserved in written format, in audio, in video, that is crucial, I think, to meaning-making. It's crucial to, well, what, what most of the religious and spiritual traditions of the world, they're, they're based around stories, and they're based around, oftentimes, mythologies and mythologized stories, but stories give us a possibility to make sense of our lives, and to put our lives into, in a context that is larger than just ourselves. Absolutely. And 
Yeah, so I hear and I see that in uh, your work and in anybody that really goes into a place with without much of an agenda except to find human beings that are living beautifully. Mm. I like that. What did you just say? Human beings who are living beautifully? Yeah, I, it se- it seems to me I that, like that your 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 agenda is is simply that. Um, well, it's a, it, know, it is simply that, but there's something slightly more Machiavellian lurking behind, actually. Oh, oh please, please tell us. <laughs> I have a very strong justice reflex. I grew up in a very political house with very Republican parents. God love them. Mm-hmm. Uh, literal gun gunsmith for a dad, actually. Well, and you'd make guns. Yes and repairs and refurbishes and it's an art it's an art form and i've learned so much from him and from my mom and even in all the ways that we disagree and agree i mean just taking that as an example i growing up in that house like learning all of the republican talking points learning about why Mm. gun control is bad it's not And embracing that and fully bringing it into my psyche and sense of self and then Socratically, like peeling back the epistemological, is that a word, layers of like, why do I think what I think? Yeah. And being challenged by my husband, honestly, for the first time when we first met 11 years ago or however long it's been, just to be like with a lot of love and patience saying like, well, why do you think that? Why? What? Describe to me why people who are disabled aren't as valuable. Not that I ever thought that, but like problematic assumptions, Mm -hmm. being able to walk it back. And I think the Machiavellian sense comes in in terms of, I think that there is right and wrong, not objectively, but just in terms of the meaning that we've created for ourselves after 40,000 years of being humans and passing down mythology and our collective consciousness. Mm-hmm. I think that there, I can see what's wrong. I don't know so much what's right. I feel what's right. I'm not sure it's right, but I can mm-hmm. share. Sure. I can share that good feeling with people. But when it comes to things that are wrong, we can tell stories about what's wrong. And instead of branding it as wrong, you say, "Let's tell this story. Let's ask this person why they think what they think, and let's talk mm-hmm. to the survivors, and let's." examine the past when this wasn't the case. The example that pops to mind is I made a film a few years ago with my co-director, Corey Embring, and he was also the DP of that project and he edited it as well, just to give him full credit. It's called Like We Don't Exist, and it's probably the most heart-wrenching project I've ever taken on. It's about the longest- I I remember, I remember this. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's about the longest ongoing civil war in the world that nobody knows about. And that war... Tell, 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 us, tell us about it. What's the context? Yeah, the context is in Myanmar, which was formerly called Burma, which was formerly called a bunch of principalities and kingdoms that eventually got colonized and called Burma. Like much of the now developed world, it's the borders are arbitrary up until 1849 or whatever it was. Since 1948, Burmese military forces have executed a very thorough ethnic cleansing campaign, not just against Rohingya, which we're hearing about more in the news now, but even decades before the recent violence, continuously, there has been a genocide, a civil war, systematic rape, appropriation of resources, and disenfranchisement in terms of land and in terms of statehood against roughly, I I don't know how many millions of people, but two dozen different minorities, sub-minorities of the Burmese people. So they're religiously, linguistically, culturally, I mean, even their food is different. They all look Asian to an American. They'd be like, oh yeah, you're Chinese. But no, they're very, very, very different. And Mm -hmm. I discovered this community when I was traveling through Thailand and I met a friend who became one of the subjects of the film who inspired me and Corey to make this film. And the point for me to make that film 
to bring it back to the Machiavellian impulse, was we have to make it awkward for the Burmese military government to continue murdering people, hurting people, yeah. kicking them off their land. Did we succeed? No, they're still doing it. They're, yeah. they're, still, they're still awful. They're still doing it. But what we did do is a lot of those people who are refugees, and we went to the refugee camp and we spent two and a half years on this project and we lived there. And we didn't just visit for two weeks at a time. Like I quit my job working for Brandon and I moved to Thailand to pursue this film full time. Wow. What happened is a lot of those people in the refugee camp ended up becoming welcomed into the United States and they have a second life as Americans. And, 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 and because of the film, you think? No, 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 no. Okay. No, no, no. I don't think so. No. I don't think it was because of the film. That was happening for many years. But what happened because of the film, when we screened the film and distributed it, I didn't go to screenings in LA, Chicago, and New York. I went to Bowling Green, Kentucky. I went to Winston-Salem, North Carolina. I went to Springdale, Arkansas. I went to Austin, Minnesota. I went to small towns that have brought in an inordinate amount of refugees, not just from Burma, but also from Somalia and Ethiopia. And you get these little towns that 15 years ago were 99% white, like mm. Polish, like in Minnesota. And then you get these survivors of the worst travesties that the world has ever experienced. And there's nothing more American. And the thing is, these people are very diminutive. The Kareni, this is the group that I worked with, the Kareni. They're very humble. Mm. They never talk about themselves. So they would never share this terrible story. So what we were able to do in these communities is to come in to present their story and they're looking straight in the camera and it's them expressing their truth. You can't disagree with somebody saying my father was killed on a Tuesday. That's not political. You can't say fake news to that. That's a fact. Mm. And, yeah. and when you present somebody's truth that way, when you give them a platform, it wasn't about me as the filmmaker. We didn't have a voice. I don't, I don't do that Ken Burns style with the narrator and the slow pans. No. The whole point is to sit you, the viewer, down in front of this person and look into their eyes and hear their experience and hear their life and realize, oh, we're the same. That person, yeah. they, they just want good food. They just want peace. They want to work hard, but not too hard. They want to be respected. I want those things. They look different. They speak a different language. But the film is a success if at the end you go, oh, okay, I really thought that they were different and they're not. And that's, for me, that's the purpose. That's to show our essential humanity. Yeah, and I think that is another component that I see in mystical states, for example, they talk about how you have a sense of unity with the world, with everything. And among uh, that sense of unity is a, is a unity of all mankind, of all humankind. And I think that really good films do that. Really good films that get at you know, what it is to be human, they show us that humanity. And if it's successful, if it's if it's beautiful and honest, you, we are we leave that the theater or the experience of watching that movie is itself a sacred experience. There are certain movies, they're few and far between, but there are certain movies for me that I I have to watch alone because they are so important to me, and they have done so much for how I look at the world that I watch I. I space them out the time the times that I watch them, but when I when I watch them, it takes me somewhere else and it changes me. Yeah, I miss that watching movies together. I did a screening today for a rough draft for I was just telling you about this for uh, a rough draft of a of a film that I am obsessed with. I'm making it now, and I just finished the rough draft today, and I presented it to my client, the hospital. So it's like five people on a team, and they were like, "Okay, just send us the link," and I said, "No." <laughs> At 4.30 p.m., we're going to get on together. You're going to turn on your cameras. You're going to cue it up. I'm going to tell you about it. And then you're all going to press play all at the same time. Okay. It's not the same. <laughs> I know. But there's something, there's something about being together and experiencing somebody else's story. And I'm so sad that we can't do that right now. I mean, for the best of reasons. But that community, no, no, no. I miss it so That's much. That's important. 
it's and it's important also to to feel feelings at the same time as other people. I mean, that's that's the whole point of, of ritual. That's a whole dance exactly. where if you're dancing together, if you're singing together, exactly. you are in sync with the other people mentally, emotionally. Yeah, that's very important. Yeah, and I'm finding new ways of doing it. This year was really hard because so a lot of my clients were in the travel and hospitality industry just by merit of the fact that I travel all the time. So that works really well for like airlines and hotels and stuff. I got dumped in April. Are you kidding? Oh my God. All my business for the year just. And that made me get so creative because I had all this free time, just like everybody else. I mean, what do they say about creativity? Like obstacle is the best thing that could the obstacles, happen to me. The obstacle is the way. The obstacle is the way. Oh, I didn't want to say that. Yeah. That's a great book, though, for for your listeners who <laughs> haven't read that book. The obstacle is the way. Yeah, it's, uh, what is it, Ryan Holiday? He's a Stoic uh, writer, a uh, modern Stoic uh, writer. Yeah, The Obstacle is the Way. I'm, I'm actually, I'll, I'll add that to the little uh, list of books that, that I have going on uh, bookshop.org. I love that book. Ryan Holiday. He also has, I mean, it's a little gimmicky, but... Talk about delivering value. He has a daily newsletter. I don't know if you're subscribed to it. Yeah, the Daily Stoic. It's amazing because it's so thoughtful. And as a content, I'm not a content creator. F that. Like, that's not me. But as somebody who is inspired by content creators, like you, like like your podcast emails that you send out, I save them because I'm like, this is a really good example. Like if I ever wanted to do this in the future, <laughs> I'm like, I should probably use this as a reference because I don't, I don't see the secret, Daniel, is I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> do you think I know what I'm doing? <laughs> no, and that's, I, I, that's the beauty. I started this, I started this podcast in, in, in the middle of the pandemic too, because I, I had way too much free time and this is something that I wanted to, yeah, yeah cards on the table i'm i'm learning and making it up as i go along if it doesn't sound like it well i'm doing a good job not to sound like a sophomore in college but isn't that the point man like like just put one foot in front of the other and just do your best and i think that was really liberating for me when i figured out that and this happened early on like i'm not gonna spontaneously explode if i just set up several safety mechanisms and pursue my passion right like pursuing your passion doesn't look like Uh, splitting up with your significant other and noping out of your job and breaking your lease and dumping your dog at your mom's house. That's a bad example. And I think a lot of people are overly simplistic when it comes to like pursuing my passion. They don't think all the way through. And I can understand why, because pursuing your passion isn't something that you can map. It's like walking Mm. through fog. Like you can only really, you can tell if two steps ahead, you're about to walk into the water. You're like, I probably shouldn't do that. Yeah, and so that's something that I wanted to mention too. That you were talking about the kind of well, your wanderlust and your your enthusiasm, your 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 wild wild and 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 adventurous life. And for some people, that's that's not an authentic expression of what they want, you know, their lives to be. Maybe some people want adventure, but not that much. Or or maybe some people uh, don't like to travel. Yet there is there are ways of living an authentic and 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 passionate life sitting at home sitting in your workshop if you're a woodworker creating creating a a community that is just in your small town just in your small neighborhood you never leave the adventure doesn't have to be uh doesn't always have to look like an adventure yeah i completely agree and i'm so grateful to the pandemic for proving that point to me i i i think grateful is the wrong word but it's the closest approximation because I was supposed to fly to Peru when COVID hit, and of course I didn't, although I considered doing it anyway and getting stuck there on purpose, and I'm glad that I didn't, (laughs) but would not have been a great film. Maybe I should have done that anyway. But what it has encouraged me to do is to, exactly as you just said, live into that sense of adventure, even though I'm stuck within these four walls. And I started a project, and I'm about to release it. Actually, this is a good time to announce it. I haven't talked to, to anybody about this where I interviewed people from all over the world, screen recording a Zoom call and getting B-roll from their cell phones and from local filmmakers and from archival footage that I have and putting together a story of 
advocate, an advocate for survivors of gender-based violence in Uganda and how the compounding impact of the lockdown has prevented their ability to support these survivors. Or the story of a refugee from Ethiopia who came to a small rural town in Minnesota, became a citizen, and the first time he ever voted in his life, his name was on the ballot. He was running for city council. And I have 10 other stories just like that. A family that had a baby, a preemie baby, in the midst of COVID. And I'm not able to be there. And I'm a filmmaker. And I, I, I'm used to jumping on a plane, finding the funding on the flight, and getting there, and just getting the story. And now I can't do that. But what I can do is I can connect with people. And, oh man, this is going to sound like I'm patting myself on the back. Young kids ask me all the time. No, but really, like, like... Like up and coming producers are like, or people who want to learn more about producing. And what is producing? Producing is making it happen. Being a producer means you made it happen. And it's literally as vague as it sounds because you have to wear all of those hats. And being a producer right. is, again, going back to listening to people, making them feel heard, giving them something. And what does that look like in the midst of the pandemic? That means like, okay, let's say uh, you're of Ukrainian descent. And you always had wanted to go there, but you don't know anything about Ukraine. Okay, so just go on Facebook and just like join a group and just lurk for a while. Like Ukrainian Americans, people are passionate about this stuff. They'll upload all of their like painted ceramics and their cute little like pastries and stuff. And you'll learn about it and you'll connect with people. And if you give yourself a challenge and you can figure out what the challenge is, your gut will tell you what's the right challenge. Maybe it's talk to one new person a week. Or maybe it's read one new article a week. It will enrich your life. And maybe Ukrainian history isn't what you care about. Maybe it's, maybe it's breaking. Break dancing, what most people call it. But maybe it's breaking. Okay. Like, how many new channels can you find? How many people can you find who do this, who aren't breakers that you would traditionally think of as being breakers no, no way are you are these examples specifically for me no actually because that's well that's that i i am ukrainian my on my mother's I side forgot about uh, and i and i did break dance i i, I was actually bre- i was break dancing last weekend uh, there was some guys out in the in the quarter in the french quarter they had to put a rug out they were trying to busk for some money and when they were tired i was like yeah hey, mind if i mind if i and throw down like, for a little bit and they're <clears throat> you're yeah. top rocking a oh, little people, bit they're like oh people, white boy can do it okay oh see see people love it when a, when a white guy throws down on a break dance <laughs> in, a, in a break dance circle they go they go crazy okay so shout out <laughs> to my crew with stance so for the last couple of years i actually just got a notification today i think it was five years ago i started working with this channel called stance and it's my friend dan and a bunch of other friends keen and anderson and a bunch of people they're freaking amazing i can't swear on your podcast right there's no reason okay. not to. No. Well, I'll be a good. <laughs> I'm not going to bleep it out. I'll be a good girl. It's going to be there. Um, they have gotten me into breaking and filming live breaking events and ciphers. Wait, wait, like, and you, and are you are you break dancing? No, 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 no. no, no. <laughs> okay, all right. I would love to yeah. learn, but the focus for me is on being a live stream camera operator. I mean, these guys move, and I've got to rack yeah. focus and. Just in terms of filmmaking, it's incredibly challenging. But again, to bring it back to this core theme, whether it's breaking, whether it's Ukrainian culture, whether it's ski drawing, whether it's raising miniature dachshunds, you know what I mean? Whatever whatever your passion mm-hmm. is, because the thing that frustrates me is that people are like, oh, I'm not passionate about that. I'm not passionate about that. And then you start to meet people who aren't passionate about anything. And then mm. they start to, I mean, I... I I've seen this happen with some of my friends. They don't see themselves that way, but they're frustrated yeah. because they feel that they've pegged themselves into a corner where they're not really passionate about anything because it's hard to be passionate about things. It's risky. You're making yourself vulnerable. You're saying, I care about something a lot and somebody could take that away from you. And that's dangerous. Yeah. And you don't want to have that loss. And a lot of people have been through a lot of really tough stuff this year. It's too much to ask that you investigate an adventure. It's too much to ask that you join a, a Facebook group. And I, I get that. And all of these hypos will sound absurd until you put yourself into it. It's not about living more adventurously. It's about living more authentically. Yeah. So I want to I want to I want to ask you about something here because 
when we were chatting on on Facebook to talk about you know, setting this up, you mentioned that you wanted to talk about positive nihilism, that that's a kind of uh, philosophy by which uh, you live. And I have the quote here. I uh, he said, if, if nothing matters, we can do anything while we inhabit this meat sack. And so I and I and I love that. And I love that mentality. And really, there's because for for those who are listening, that many people are not atheists, naturalists, people that don't believe that there is a, an overarching purpose or meaning to either our lives or the universe. And so for some people, that can be, that can be a hard pill to swallow. That can be heavy. And to, to know that you're not meeting your, your loved ones after you die, that everything you do will eventually turn to dust and be forgotten. And yet at the same time, and I think this is what you were getting at, if nothing matters, then you're free. That a weight is lifted off of your shoulders. So there's, there's that point. But at the same time, we've spent this entire episode talking about things that matter and things that matter to, to you, the things that you make films about, the, the experiences and the conversations and the, and the adventures that you've gone on, the people that you've met. And so th- on the absolute level, things don't matter. That there's, there seems to be no, no, no climax to eternity. There's, there's no you know, end to, towards which everything is headed. Not that, not that we can tell anyway. But on the relative level, on the day-to-day, there is so much that matters and so much that you, we, it, it's, it's why we get up in the morning, right? It's why you make films. It's why I, I write or do this podcast. We care about things. And, and that passion, is, that's, that's what makes humanity humanity. So it's the stuff of life. Absolutely. Man. That was it, right there. I couldn't say it any better myself. <laughs> Welcome to. Re- I'm glad you listened to Reenchantment. Uh, that's the end of the whole show. Where there are going to be no more episodes after this because we've done it. Um, oh man, that's funny. But but okay. But here's here's the other thing because tying it back to what what you said, people being passionate is vulnerable. There there's a lot of fear associated with that people are afraid to pursue their their dreams for a whole host of reasons beyond just like the the logistical it's it, it will be difficult and maybe even impossible there even if it is possible there there are layers of fear and so i guess for those who want to live more authentically that want to to pursue their passion whether it's outside of, uh, in the world adventure or or something something completely completely their own how do people get over that fear how do you do it mm, that's a fantastic question but for i mean do you have fear if you don't have fear that's not a, a relevant question to no, uh, I have, sometimes I have so, sometimes i look at look at you and say i'm like ah oh, she's just not afraid of anything oh then i'm a great pretender <laughs> i am afraid of a lot of things so that's your question how do people get over fear so i will come back to it i will answer your question but first I'm going to establish a couple truths. Mm-hmm. I'm kind of like you. I am fascinated with spirituality and I've researched a lot in terms of religious studies, both Judeo-Christian as well as I studied Taoism briefly, meaning I took a course in college. So let's not get ahead of ourselves. But it was a <laughs> course. It was a full course about Taoism. Buddhism, of course. And what I get from all of those things is not any grand unified theory, because I'm a little bit more, I just believe in humans more than codified religion or whatever Mm -hmm. books say. Uh, You can glean information just as like you can get something great out of a self-help book. You can get something great out of the Bible. You can get something great out of the Bhagavad Gita. Like that's wonderful. And something I got from Buddhism is that life is suffering. It's just, it's not negotiable. Life is suffering. And I agree. I I know what chronic pain feels like. I know what depression feels like. I know what uh, trauma feels like. I know what heartbreak feels like. I know how I feel when somebody I love is hurting. And I know that none of those things are avoidable. They are mutable, right? You can flow in and out of that pain and out of that fear and out of that suffering and you can prevent it 
but it is inevitable. So that's not, doesn't have to be depressing. It's just true. We're going to get older and our bodies will fail and we will experience pain. Many of your listeners will know what chronic pain feels like. Just existing, just breathing, just standing, just sitting hurts. That's what, that's what life is suffering means to me. And it's not a bad thing. Because again, in terms of the absolute, does the universe suffer when I suffer? No. But am I going to be worried about how the universe feels? No, because I can't control that. I know that in 120 years, I'll be dead. And I, I've really got my set, sights set very high in a very, very, very long life. It's going to be ridiculous. I'll be falling apart, yeah. but it'll be good. But I know that the majority of my presence on Earth will be in the form of dust, literally. Like, right now, I'm in this form. And that's so cool. And not to sound too spacey, but once you accept the fact that it's okay to die... Not only is suffering inevitable, but death is also inevitable. You start to realize that it's not like dance like nobody's watching kind of thing, but it's more like, okay, what I do doesn't really matter. That's the first step. It's not the end step. Cause I said that once to another friend on another podcast and she said, she stopped me and she was like, okay, I'm just going to stop you right there. You do matter. Your life matters. If you're feeling depressed, <laughs> you almost like a come to Jesus. And I think that that was a very important disclaimer that I would like to share with your viewers. I'm not trying to say that you don't matter. I'm not trying to say that existence doesn't matter. That's not the final step for me. That's just an assumption that you accept. And then you move on from there. Because I can't get out of my brain. You can't get out of your brain. You can't feel what I'm feeling. And I can't feel what you're feeling. I can try, I can get really close. And it kind of feels like we're feeling the same thing. Sometimes it feels like we're feeling exactly the same thing. And that's the magic that we're always chasing. That's connection, that's synergy, that's dance, that's music, that's life, that's love. But it's all fleeting and it will all pass. And because of that, because nothing else outside of my brain is perceptible to me, I'm stuck in here, then the meaning that is relevant to my life is that which I can create and that which I can give. And because suffering is inevitable and because meaning is relative to whoever perceives it, then what I can do is I can reduce your suffering by creating something meaningful to you. I can reduce the suffering of people who want to hear a certain story. I can reduce the suffering of people who need their story to be told. And new meaning is generated with each iteration. Like when we made the film about the refugees, I thought that was the ultimate meaning. No, it was about the people who came to America and who needed to tell their story to their new neighbors. And for us as Americans who are grossly intolerant of those who are, tr are too vulnerable and too scarred to speak for themselves. Sometimes it just needs a boost and you can make new connections and you can't write anybody off. I, I was a Bible thumping Republican for the first 18 years of my life. I, I was converted. Like, you know what I mean? Like there is hope, <laughs> there is hope. And I, having been somebody who has evolved a lot in my life, not just, I mean, it's easy to throw myself under the bus. It wasn't that bad, but like as somebody who has grown and who has said, what are my problematic, what are my grandchildren going to tell me is a really messed up thing. Like I can anticipate that. I don't have to wait to be in my old age to wonder at what suffering I'm causing now. Mm -hmm. Just because we're living within this paradigm doesn't, it's so impermanent. It doesn't matter. So that's a really long winded way of saying it's not that nothing matters. That's why I kind of cringed when you read back to me what I said. Many things matter very much. On a universal level, it's just... It's just dynamism. It's just atoms moving around. Yeah. That's it. But for us, in our human experience, it's so rich. And we have such a broad spectrum of things that we can experience. If all you want to experience is Netflix, I mean, more power to you. Like, I am not here to hate if it's basket weaving. 
if it's scuba diving, if it's filmmaking, if it's cooking, if it's being a good mom, great. Like, don't waste time beating yourself up. Don't think, oh, I'm such a failure. There's no point to yeah. that. You're not answering to anybody. There's, there's, there's nobody to apologize to. Right. Yeah, no, there's, I, I, th I often think in, in judging a life, really what I am looking for is not whether somebody's lived a good or a bad life. I ask, are they living a beautiful life? And it's something that I, that I ask myself a lot too. Because morality is much like purpose. It is, it is something that is human-made. But beauty, when we see it, it, it looks, it's in the eye of the beholder, for sure. But if we are satisfied with the beauty of our own lives, nobody can take that away from you. Yeah, that's right. And it doesn't need to exist. That's the other thing. A lot of the times when I'm like banging my head over a story that I'm producing, I'm like, nobody knows about this. Nobody cares about this. I could stop right now and it wouldn't hurt anybody except the subject might be disappointed. But when you release it and when you create new connections and I'm not saying all my work is beautiful. I am learning. I am growing. I am developing. I am. I know a thing or two and I this is a lifelong pursuit. Your, your, your work is pretty good. I've, I've seen most of your work. It's pretty good. <laughs> but it's not that things aren't important and it's not that beauty is the only metric. It's that we have this magic ability to create something that never existed before. And it's intangible. It's not something that can really be measured. I mean, you can try and we approximate it. But... I'm just fascinated by the pursuit of, how do I put it into words? I got to think about this because I'm almost there and I'm still sussing out the whole positive nihilism thing myself. Going back to things are only as, going back to meaning is what you create. How cool to create something that somebody else finds meaningful. Mm -hmm. And it changes their life. And it doesn't mean that nothing matters. It doesn't mean that you can do nothing. It means that everything matters. It's the opposite. That's what I was trying to say. It's, it's everything matters. Every day matters. Every choice matters. Every relationship matters. When you blow somebody off, it matters. When you stop somebody and say a kind word, it matters. You're making the world yeah. a better place. And it's not because you're trying to get brownie points to enter heaven. It's because this is, mm -hmm. this is it. This is the only thing that matters. And even if all of this disappears, and if and if the human race and the planet Earth and all of this uh, goes away without a trace, it will have still, it will still have mattered. Yeah. And I think the only criticism that you could have of this, well, not the only, let's, we could, we should dig into it. Like what, like, let's, let's criticize it. But it's like, well, okay, it matters to your human brain, but to the universe, it doesn't matter. Okay. Well, if it doesn't matter to the universe and that was true already, then why are we talking about it with our human brains? Trying to figure mm -hmm. out if it's meaningful or if it matters. It's like proving the point. It's like we are within a construct of our own making. And so we might as well lean yeah. into it. So le yeah. lean, lean the hell into it like the only other option is to deprive yourself of the opportunity to pursue your ultimate manifestation mm -hmm. that would be sad it would be yeah I, I, we're hit we're, we've hit this this nice nice ending point here i think but it, it just brings brings two things to mind one is i think bertrand russell you know said Oftentimes, like, we think that scale and influence is what really matters, that we look at the vastness of the universe and, and we think, oh, we're so small, like, the, it, it makes us feel without purpose or without influence. And, and he said, yeah, but what uh, a hippo was larger than Isaac Newton. Was a hippo more important than Isaac Newton? Is a hippo more important than your mother? There's you know, purpose is something that, and, and meaning is something that is inherently human. We don't, in, in the entirety of Jupiter, like that, that whole giant gaseous mass, as far as we know, it has no meaning, it has no purpose. And yet in a single evening, in a single person, you could find so much value and so much meaning. 
you know you can walk walk the planets of our solar system for eons and not find anything as beautiful as we have here in our own houses in our own neighborhoods and uh, and the other thing i was thinking about was this quote by uh, i believe it was a, a kind of a Na- i think it was a native american shaman or some something of, of that sort he said all paths are the same they lead nowhere but there are paths with heart and there are paths without heart and if the path has heart the journey will be a joyous one and if it does not you will curse your life one path strengthens you the other weakens you mm. mr poet man uh, very nicely uttered did you memorize that i've just been i've been reading it the past few days over and over again and damn son that's crazy I mean, that's Robert Frost-esque, of course, but what I like about that, again, there's no pressure. I think one thing I was afraid of with this conversation, the way you were framing it, like I'm such an awesome human being, is like people will be like, "Um, if I were listening to this, I would go, okay, why should I care? And I think if I could say anything, it would just be, you shouldn't don't care about don't don't spend your time on me spend your time on the things that you really care about i've been helping a friend recently who's going through just sort of like a purpose crisis because they find themselves in a job that they were once very excited about and now they don't identify with at all and it's very hard to wake up one morning and realize and it's never waking up one morning right it's never that it's you have a creeping sensation for a long time that you're not where you need to be and you don't feel the way that you want to feel and the worst part is that it would take a series of events to get you out of that situation and that's too hard again it's like walking through the fog yeah it's not realistic to to be able to see ahead you don't have that power you're just yourself And I think what I would say is just one step at a time. Start moving in the direction that feels good. If you've got two paths and one your gut tells you that you should be walking on and the other one you've got this weird spooky feeling, doesn't, the money doesn't matter, honey. It doesn't matter. The luxury, the convenience, if you're going to die an early death, it doesn't matter. And whoever I'm speaking to who needs to hear this, You'll be mad at yourself for not having been honest with yourself sooner. And for me, that's a major mm-hmm. motivator. I want to die knowing if I die, when I die. I'm still grappling with my own mortality a little bit, but I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm totally ready. Nothing matters. It's good. I, I, I'm fine. It's fine. Nothing matters. Okay. But in all sincerity, it's not just about living with no regrets. It's about living knowing that you made the right choices. And it's not about looking back. It's about looking forward. What do you want to tell yourself as an old person? Like, life, life is slow. It is. It's not fast. It's slow. You have so much time. And it's never yeah. too late. It's never too late to start thinking, what can I do? What are some small actions that I can do to be my more authentic, my, my true self? And... Hopefully we come to the end of our lives and look back and realize that, yeah, we lived. We did. We did it. Yeah, how do you feel about your great-great-grandfather, Daniel? The the grandfather who was a rabbi? Oh, I'm assuming that your great-great-grandfather is. Oh, well, um, how do I feel about him? I, I I feel a distant admiration. I do, yeah. Okay, great 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 grandfather then. Don't know okay, exactly. Exactly. So give your great, 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 great children, grandchildren something to be proud of if they think of you at all. If they read one line about you, they should know that you were an authentic person. They should know that you helped people. I hope I, hope I will, and I hope they will, they will get that message. Well, 200 years ago, they didn't have podcasts, so... Who knows 200 years from now if they will still have podcasts. <laughs> There's a lot of questions between here and there. A lot of things can happen. Well, thank you so much for inviting me on yours. 
thank you for coming on. This has been a really fun conversation, Ansley. And yeah, it's been great to reconnect and see that you're keeping the flame alive. (laughs) Always a pleasure to speak deeply about inane topics that only matter to us. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, nobody else. No, no, this isn't relevant for anybody at Mm. all. (laughs) No, no. All right, cool. All right, thanks, Ansley. Thanks. Thank you for listening to Reenchantment. What are your thoughts about positive nihilism? Is it something that gives us freedom, liberty to be our authentic selves, or something that leads to hedonism and solipsism? I posted a brief article about my thoughts on this on the website. Go to reenchantmentpod.com to read it. If you have your own thoughts, feel free to send me a message at daniel at reenchantmentpod.com. If you'd like to see some of Ansley's videos, go to torqueworld.com, torque spelled T-O-R-Q, and to watch some of the amazing short films we mentioned in this episode, go to this episode's description or to the Reenchantment website to find links in this episode's show notes. I highly recommend you watch them. Every time I do, the world feels wider to me than it was before. For this week's Aethosaurus word, I have Yu Yi. It means the desire to feel intensely again. It's the desire to see with fresh eyes and feel things just as intensely as you did when you were younger, before expectations, before memory, before words. It might sound like a word from an Eastern language, but it's completely made up. John Koenig founded the Dictionary of Obscure Sorrows to give a name to emotions we all might experience but don't yet have a word for. The Dictionary of Obscure Sorrows is one of the inspirations for the Aethosaurus. The dictionary is full of deep and beautiful words and ideas, many of which would fit seamlessly on this show. Lastly, a big thanks to Joanne from the UK for supporting the show with a one-time payment. She has been a committed listener and often sends me uh, in-depth emails and reflections on the episodes, and I really, really enjoy them, so thank you, Joanne. If you'd like to support the show but don't want to use Patreon, you can send me an email at daniel at reenchantmentpod.com, and I can let you know how to do that. As always, thank you for listening. I'll see you next time on Reenchantment. Enchantment.